Our guest speaker is Mr. Edward Ball, who with his first book, Slaves in the Family, captured the 1998 National Book Award for Nonfiction. This book chronicles his search for his own roots. Goes back to 1698 in the arrival of his great, 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 great grandfather, seven generations, I hope I got that right, from England. His family's great South Carolina rice plantations through the Civil War years, and the history and legacy of slavery that was left behind. In conducting the search, he used family archives, historical society collections, parish directories, and telephone books. He walked the back roads of South Carolina. He traveled to the prisons of West Africa. And he eventually located and made contact with some of the 100,000 African Americans living in the United States today who descended from the Ball family slaves. His book has been called a work of breathtaking generosity and courage, a poignant exploration of the dark roots and bitter fruits of slavery in America, and a brilliant blend of archival research and oral history. Please welcome Edward Ball. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for that nice introduction. In early 1998, I published my first book, Slaves in the Family. And naturally, I felt some worry about how it would be received. Fortunately, the book had a friendly reception in the mainstream press, winning the National Book Award and landing me in the studio of the Oprah Winfrey Show twice. <laughs> and last December, when media outlets announced their year-end roundups of the best and worst of 1998, Time Magazine put Slaves in the Family among its top five nonfiction books. And so it went. Thank you. And so it went, a compliment here and a laurel there, until I began to feel the embarrassment of overpraise. But amid all the hosannas, my favorite was the puncturing decree issued by Salon.com magazine. <laughs> Salon.com is an online magazine known to prick the balloon of convention the editors of Salon.com looked at the evidence and they counted up all the adjectives and they declared that Slaves in the Family was the most overrated book of 1998. <laughs> Slaves in the Family is about my father's family, who were plantation owners and slave owners in South Carolina, and about my search for and meetings with descendants of our ancestors' slaves. Sometimes in families, there's a moment when traditions are passed from one generation to the next. I remember such an afternoon in the summer of 1969. 
My dad called my brother Theodore and me into the living room and sat us down on the green couch. We were 11 and 12 years old. My father was in his 50s and had lost most of his hair. He was blind in one eye from glaucoma, and that eye, his left, pointed slightly toward the wall. He was depressed, sick, and he would be dead within two years. In his hand, however, he held two copies of an old book. It had a green cover, a tan binding, and it was called Recollections of the Ball Family of South Carolina. The book had been written by an elderly cousin of his and published by a vanity press in the year 1909. Dad gave the two of us the books and he said, This is the story of your family. Keep it. One day you'll want to know all about it. Without knowing it, my father had set in motion a chain of events that led, 20 years later, to my writing my first book, Slaves in the Family. I began Slaves in the Family in September 1994 when I moved from New York City to Charleston, South Carolina, one of my homes during childhood. The Ball family had been meticulous record keepers, saving some 10,000 pages of documents about the family business, which happened to have been the slave business, including correspondence, lists of slaves, receipts for the purchase and sale of people, work assignments, account books, medical records of slaves, laundry lists. This material, spanning two centuries, is housed in four archives in the South, the South Carolina Historical Society, which is a private library in Charleston, the South Carolina Library in the city of Columbia, South Carolina, the Special Collections Library at Duke University, in Durham, North Carolina, and the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I visited these libraries and luxuriated in the original plantation documents, the textures of 18th century parchment, the ink spills and the wormholes, the ancient smells captured in archive boxes. The first member of our family to go into the slave business was a man named Elias Ball who came from England in the year 1698, at the age of 22, to take possession of his inheritance. This consisted of one half of a rice plantation near Charleston and about 25 people, Native American and African slaves. The land and the people had been left to him by his aunt, who was childless. Elias Ball, coming to South Carolina, married and had five children who lived through adulthood. They either married plantation owners or they became slave masters themselves. And things continued this way for five generations. During the 170 years between the arrival of Elias in America and the end of the Civil War, the Ball family controlled some 25 rice plantations near Charleston and enslaved close to 4,000 Africans and African Americans. I estimate that the descendants I estimate that the descendants of Ball family slaves number between 75,000 and 100,000 living Americans today. I delivered the manuscript to my publisher, Farrar Strauss and Giroux in November 1997 and emerged from 3 years of solitude. 
I was starved for the response of a reader. Any reader. (laughs) My editor, of course, had worked on the manuscript, but he was the only one, apart from my research assistant, who had actually seen it. The book was published, and soon a stream of letters began to arrive in the mail. Aha! I celebrated. Here is the Vox Populi, the voice of the people. Readers. The letters came in bundles, forwarded a dozen or two at a time by Farrow Strauss in big envelopes. And I fell on them like a hungry animal. I'd like to read you a sample of what they contained. From Bridgeton, Missouri, Sharon Terry wrote, Dear Mr. Ball, I just finished reading your book, Slaves in the Family. I enjoyed it very much. I did find a few typographical errors, however. (laughs) They are as follows. Page 66. Paragraph 4. The word company is missing an M. Page 441, paragraph 5. The word middle is missing a D. Thank you for writing this fine book. (laughs) From Judith Dunford, New York City. Dear Mr. Ball, I'm reading your book, Slaves in the Family, with great interest. I must take mild exception, however, to your characterizing the instrument, the viola da gamba, as having anticipated the cello. (laughs) I had written that Elias Ball hired a musician to teach his children how to read music. And he was a viola da gambist. The viola da gamba was a a four-string instrument that's played upright between the legs with a bow. And it preceded the cello in history. I must take exception to your characterizing the viola da gamba as having anticipated the cello. My son is a gambist living in Paris, and that's not exactly right. The viola da gamba is a partially fretted instrument and thus a member, strictly speaking, of the guitar family. Thank you for writing this fine book. (laughs) Goodness gracious. From Don Simmons, dear Mr. Ball. I want to thank you for signing my copy of your splendid book, Slaves in the Family. So far, I am up to page 101. Dawn is writing from England, in fact. What a remarkable man your ancestor, the original Elias Ball, was, and to have originated in our lovely county of Devon. (laughs) 
This may come as a surprise to you, but I once owned the Elias Ball commode chair. I was invited to view some antiques that a member of the Ball family had for sale, and I arrived to find a pile of furniture in a garage and nearly went into shock to find a Chippendale-style commode chair, which I bought at once. (laughs) Thus follows two more pages of description of the commode chair. Email from Andrea Rosen, Toronto, Canada. I attended your signing at the University of Toronto. I am the lady who was wearing all black. I am 5'7 with shoulder length dark brown hair. And I think that you are a very cool person. I rollerblade a fair bit, and I was wondering if you would like to go blading with me whenever you come back to Toronto. If you can't blade, I would be happy to teach you. Yes, indeed. What is on the mind of America? (laughs) Larry Parr of Atlanta, Georgia. Dear Mr. Ball, I just finished your book, Slaves in the Family. The service you provided to African Americans does not justify the injustice you did to your own family. You are the type of Southerner who goes north and gets involved with that group of northerners who hate the south and everything southern. To prove yourself to them, you have to hate the south more than they do. Why did you not interview a descendant of a northern slave ship captain to find his ideas of how his ancestors' slave trading affected him? However, to do this would have, to take, would have taken away from the objective of your book. Therefore, your grade for slaves in the family is an F for history. (laughs) Sincerely yours, Larry Parr. William Tyler, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Dear Mr. Ball, I just listened to Fresh Air. This is an NPR program. And I think that the idea of apologizing for the distant past is one of the most stupid, vicious habits we have gotten into in this century. In um, the last chapter of my book, I offer an apology to an African-American family for what my family did to their family. Makes no sense at all. How can I be responsible for people I never knew? 
I may regret what happened in the past, and I may hope to make things better now, but to apologize, stupid and vicious. Ending where? Let the Jews apologize for all the Arabs and others they killed 5,000 years ago, always at the command of their God. So please knock off this stuff and shut up, and tell the other guilt peddlers to shut up too. And let's get on with doing what we can do here and now. Sincerely, William Tyler. Michael Boyle, Tucson, Arizona. Dear Mr. Ball, I must admit that I approach black people grudgingly. Maybe I'm just an old curmudgeon, but now I have to say that I love jazz and I would probably avoid the musicians. My perception is that black people cop an attitude. I think that the ball is in the black folks' court. Ha, ha, ha. Maybe I'm pessimistic, but I've given up on the idea of the psychic integration of the races. My recent incarceration in the county jail... for 30 days, brought me in close contact with many black men. Their general behavior in all age groups was obnoxious in the extreme and served to reinforce my prejudiced attitudes tenfold. Loved your book. (laughs) And this last letter from Jill Bove of Napa, California, associate editor of the wine magazine Appellation, Appellation in French, meaning a mark or brand of wine. Dear Mr. Ball, I hope you will forgive this personal introduction from a stranger, but I would like to invite you to write a column for our wine magazine. Appellation began as a publication focused in the Napa Valley, but in recent years we've expanded to include coverage of wine country around the world. We would be delighted to publish a piece with your reflections on wine, food, place, or landscape. I wrote a book about slavery. (laughs) Well... Let me tell you something of the story that elicited these letters. May I have the lights down and the first slide? Elias Redcap Ball. (laughs) Redcap because he wears a red velvet hat in this portrait from the year 1740. Came from Devonshire, England in 1698 to Charleston, South Carolina, which was then a young colony. And he became immediately a slave owner. He was from a peasant family, the fourth son. His father's will showed a few sheep and a couple of pieces of farm equipment in Devon, so he had no inheritance. And when his aunts and his uncle, who were childless, wrote from South Carolina 
back to England saying there would be an inheritance for him if he came to take it. He went knowing next to nothing about the American colonies. Cumming Tea Plantation was the place that he inherited. It stands 25 miles north of Charleston, South Carolina, and this is the house where Elias lived from 1698 until his death in 1751. South Carolina is a small state, population 4 million. The yellow blotch on this map is Charleston Harbor. Most of the rice plantations stood on two rivers that drained into Charleston Harbor, the Ashley River and the Cooper River. This is a map showing Charleston and the Cooper River, which drains into the sea. The river forks 25 miles north of Charleston into two branches. Cumming T was named after Elias's uncle, John Cumming. It stood at the T, or fork, of the river, and that's how it got its name. Most of the ball plantations stood on the east branch, or east fork, of the Copper River. Elias had several children, including Elias Jr., who was a chip off the old block. <laughs> Elias Jr. bought some land a couple of miles from the old man and built Kensington Plantation. This is the master's house at Kensington Plantation, built in 1740. It, it's modest. It's a wooden box. The reason for this is that the plantation owners did not have the resources to build the great mansions that we normally associate with antebellum slavery. Those appeared a century later in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana during the cotton boom. But the crop was rice in South Carolina, and Greek Revival architecture had not yet been invented. <laughs> Additionally, the slave owners were not certain that their business was going to survive. They were building in what was virtually Indian country. And it made no sense to build a great mansion in Indian country. So this was the master's house. There are no paintings that would show how African Americans lived in the colonial period in slavery. So I've cheated and I've taken a photograph from a ball plantation called Cedar Hill from about 1860 showing a man named Pino, P-I-N-O, a field hand on that place, standing in front of a log house that he built just to give some suggestion of how black families might have lived during the settling of America. The Balls bought hundreds of Africans, and frequently the young men tried to run away. Less often the young women did. And when they did run away, the Balls put ads in the local newspaper in an effort to retrieve them. 
This is an ad placed by Elias Ball Jr. in the 1760s in the South Carolina Gazette, describing three men who had fled his plantation and offering a reward for their return. The Balls grew wealthy and commissioned many paintings of themselves. This is a grandson of Elias Redcap Ball. And they acquired many plantations. This is a place called Quenby Plantation, the house built in the 1770s, a few miles from Cumming Tea. This is a painting showing the grounds of Quenby Plantation in the 1840s. And in the city of Charleston, they built their mansions. This place was built about 1810 by a man named Isaac Ball. It was on a square block in the city. Behind it stood stables and housing for African Americans. The census records for 1820 show that 18 black people lived behind the house, the people who actually made the house function, and six members of the Ball family lived in the mansion itself. The house survived until 1920 when it was torn down. On its site today stands a blockbuster video store. The Balls kept meticulous records, many account books, and many lists of slaves. In the left-hand column would be the name of the person, always a single name, never a surname, because surnames were not recorded by the white people. Black people had single names. Surnames were chosen by black people after emancipation, although during slavery there's evidence that black families used surnames among themselves. In the right-hand column, the appraised value of each person. At the top of this list is a man named Bob, described as a driver. This doesn't mean a carriage driver. This means the foreman, the work driver of the work gangs in the rice fields. And he is appraised at $500 in the year 1830-something, one of the most valuable people on the property because of his position. White folks tended to pay attention to where black people came from in West Africa because they believed that different African cultures produced people with different characteristics that they could exploit. People from the Gambia River were highly prized because rice was a staple crop in the Gambia for centuries, and they had to uh, learn nothing of rice cultivation. They could be forced into the fields as soon as they stepped off the ship. People from the Congo River, the area we now call Angola, were thought to be good mechanics who could operate and build farm equipment. People from the delta of the Niger River, the Igbo tribe, however, were thought to be undesirable, and they were less expensive because white people believed that they were melancholy and subject to depression. There is some circumstantial evidence for this in a boat landing near Charleston called Ebo Landing, which got its name because as the slave ships drew up to the dock, 
The Igbos were known to throw themselves into the ocean to drown themselves rather than face the fate that awaited them on shore. So each of the ads for slave ships and auctions in the newspaper contains the place of origin of the slave ship. The largest slave trader in Charleston in the pre-Revolutionary War period was an in-law of the Balls named Henry Lawrence. He was married to one of Elias Redcap's daughters, Eleanor Ball, in 1750. And from 1750 to his death in 1792, he operated a company named Austin and Lawrence. During one 10-year period, Henry Lawrence brought in 10,000 people from West Africa and sold them in Charleston. This is a painting of Henry Lawrence by John Singleton Copley. He was one of the richest men in colonial America. And he sold many of his captives to the Balls, his in-laws. The records show. One of Henry Lawrence's ads in the newspaper describing auctions that he's holding of various black families. There were dozens and dozens of people that I read about and learned about in the Ball family and thousands and thousands of black people that I, uh, whose lives I began to understand. John Ball here, after the revolution, was probably the biggest patriarch in the family, owning six plantations and 800 people at one time. And he was married to a woman named Martha Caroline Swinton Ball. This was his second wife. Martha Caroline Swinton Ball was known, is known today affectionately in the family as Buzzard Wing. <laughs> Buzzard Wing was the second wife of John. Jane Ball, his first wife, had died at aged 40. And she was considered a devout, modest, and kindly person. John was 44 when he married Buzzard Wing, who was 20, the age of his children. And they hated Buzzard Wing. He, she began to spend his fortune. In our family, we descend from the modest, God-fearing Jane Ball, Buzzard Wing is said to have thrown a curse over the family. The story goes that after the Civil War, when the money was gone, and from time to time one of the Mr. Balls had to set foot in the rice fields himself, he would shake his fist at the sky and protest the curse of Buzzard Wing. In the early days, black people lived in houses that were made of clay with thatched roofs. After the American Revolution, a style of housing developed 
that you see here today. This is a slave street at Cumming Tea Plantation with identical wooden cabins. This is the typical housing type. The cabins are like railroad shacks. They're two rooms long, one room wide. There's a wall between the two rooms and a fireplace with two faces, one facing one room, one facing the other, one family per room. So each of these cabins might house 15 people. Some of the balls in their finery, some of the African-Americans. When I was a child, my father used to tell me about Captain Nancy. Captain Nancy, Anne Ball was her name. She was married to the son of John, that heavyset man whose picture we saw. Captain because she had a reputation for severity. When her husband died, she decided to stay on and become the master of the place herself and run it. While her husband was alive, she gave him constant instructions on how to treat the families who were working in the fields. Dear John, don't you think you're being too lenient with those people? Don't you think you should break up that work gang and transfer some of them to another plantation? Captain Nancy, and once I found a letter that she wrote to her husband describing a run-in that she had with her laundress named Betty. Dear John, John was out of town. You won't believe what happened with Betty this morning. She brought me some towels. They were too dirty, so I had her do them again. She brought them back, and they were still dirty, so I sent Betty back to wash them again. And when she brought them back a third time, insufficiently clean, I flew into a rage. And I took down the whip that we keep on our dressing table, and I struck her with it several times. And her look of astonishment made me laugh. So I sent her to the workhouse. The workhouse was a prison in Charleston for the punishment of black people. If you were a carriage driver, a cook, or a butler, and you had a run-in with your master, you could be sent to the workhouse. It was run by the city. And there was a civil servant whose job it was to beat people for a fee. The fee was 25 cents per whipping. The records that the balls left behind show payments made to the warden of the workhouse for services rendered. And so Captain Nancy sent Betty to the workhouse for her just reward. The Civil War came, and the Balls joined up. Ten members of the family enlisted in the Confederate armies. One of them was killed. This is an engraving from an English newspaper showing the bombardment of Charleston by Yankee gunships riding in the harbor in 1863. Isaac Ball, my great-grandfather, my father's grandfather, called Isaac the Confederate to distinguish him from seven other Isaacs in the family tree, enlisted in 1862, one week after his 18th birthday, 
in the South Carolina Light Artillery, served throughout the Civil War, and was found in central North Carolina during the last stand against Sherman, age 19. He survived. My father grew up in Isaac's house, where Isaac was an old man, blind from glaucoma, telling stories about the old days. Isaac's manservant, body servant, so-called, <clears throat> Nat Watson, although Isaac was only 18 years old, because of his status, his prerogative was to bring a personal servant with him into the Confederate camps. And so Nat served Isaac and his brothers and cousins throughout the war, and when the bombardments came, Nat was there. Nat washed their clothes, fixed their food, carried their packs. This was not uncommon at all. The end of the war came in spring 1865, and this is an engraving showing the entry of the 1st Regiment into Charleston, the city. It was the 55th Massachusetts Colored Infantry, a black regiment from Massachusetts. The ball plantations quickly fell into ruin. At the end of the war, the balls owned 12 plantations. 1,000 people were freed. 20 years later, the balls owned three plantations, having tried to convert them into sharecrop farms, having asked the black families to stay. Some of them stayed, some of them left. This is Isaac the Confederate as an old man in the 1920s, standing in front of one of the last ball places, a place called the Bluff, where my father spent much of his childhood. Isaac is now blind. One of Isaac's sons, my grandfather Nat in the middle, with his two sons, my dad on the left, Theodore Porterball, and his brother, Nat Jr., on the right, just to show that it wasn't that long ago at all. Isaac the Confederate came from Limerick Plantation, the largest ball place with 300 people in slavery, 4,500 acres. Another person from Limerick was a man named Peter Martin, shown here in a photograph from the 1890s, surrounded by his wife and seven children. Peter Martin was born in the 1850s at Limerick, got freedom in 1865, became a carpenter and a preacher. At the end of his life, he began to write letters to Isaac Ball, talking about the old days on Limerick. And the Balls saved these letters as a sign, perhaps, that things weren't so bad. In other words, a former family slave had written letters to talk about the old days, so things might not have been so bad. I had no clue when I began to look for descendants of Ball slaves how to find them. I asked family members and no one had an idea. So I had this packet of letters from Peter Martin as my first clue. And I began to telephone families named Martin in the tiny towns from which these letters had been postmarked, and I quickly found the right Martin family. Peter Martin had a son named Peter Jr., 
who was a roofer in the 1930s and 40s, and he had a son named Thomas Martin, who, when I met him, was a retired school principal at a public school in Charleston, living a couple of miles from where I lived. A very soft-spoken man, very reticent man, showed few emotions. I called Thomas Martin and identified myself, and he was quiet. And I asked if I could come visit, and he said yes. So I went to Mr. Martin's house on a Saturday morning with this packet of letters from his grandfather to my great-grandfather in hand, and I was terrified. I had no idea how he was going to receive me. But he was a, a diffident man, a few words, and this worked in our favor. So we sat down and we read the letters and tried to puzzle out their meaning. We were like two scholars, and there were emotions exploding in my heart that I didn't express. So after this first dignified meeting, we began to see each other regularly and open up to each other and share what we had on our hearts. His daughter got married last week. I went to their wedding. It's a, a list of people in slavery from the 1840s. The family at the top, 10 people valued at $5,400. I found their descendants. This is a man named Philip Simmons sitting in front of the cabin that his family built after they left the ball plantation called Buck Hall. And this is his daughter, Katie Simmons, in the 1930s. She's still alive, wearing a fur coat that she bought in New York. The Simmons family live in 10 states on the eastern seaboard. And this is typical. If you're black, when the Great Migration North began, in 1910, 1920, and you were living in Georgia or South Carolina, you might have gone to Baltimore, Washington, New York, or Boston, or Philadelphia. If you were living in Mississippi or Alabama or Louisiana, you would have gone to Chicago. So the Simmons family live in 10 states on the eastern seaboard, and there are about 150 of them. Katie Simmons's daughter, Dolores, standing in the grocery store, the family business. I met many, many families all over the country, more than I have time to talk about here, and it was a saga. I did this because I think we have a shared history, black with white, side by side. We have enough history about people like my family and we have a growing body of African-American history, which is as it should be. But we don't have enough shared history, which, after all, is the way that our country has developed. People of different ethnicities side by side, their lives and destinies entwined. And I wanted to try to convey some of that shared history by bringing people together into the single narrative rather than cr creating divided or segregated narratives. We can turn off the slide projector. In the past year, I've done a lot of talks and book signings. And because of the nature of the story I've told, sometimes these events have turned into a scene resembling a town meeting. 
After I stop talking, people make declarations, they ask hostile questions, or they tell their own family stories. In Atlanta, I did an event at a Borders bookstore in the fancy neighborhood of Buckhead. About 100 people came, two-thirds of them white, one-third black, and a debate quickly boiled over. An agitated 40-ish man, white man, stood up, and he declared that black people were lucky that their ancestors were taken from West Africa because American blacks have things pretty good. He said plantation life had been easy, a virtual country club. And he complained that there was now a cultural genocide against white Southerners and that the South was being blamed for a crime it did not commit and that I was participating in this cultural genocide. I tried to reason with him with little success. The audience became angry, stood up, and began to menace this man. The crowd was in a fever, and he quickly fled the room. We were all agitated after he left, but finally we calmed down. Thirty minutes later, two African-American men turned the conversation into a debate about reparations for slavery. They grew angry and increasingly hostile. We want our check and we're going to get it, like the Jews got it, and like the Native Americans, one of them said. Your opinion about this doesn't matter. Things went on this way, raucous and cathartic, for two hours. Don't talk to me about inequality. My people were Russian Jews who came through Ellis Island, and they suffered," said one woman. This isn't your story to tell, said one black woman. It belongs to black people, and your people were evil. An apology for slavery, said another person. That's ridiculous. The night was tough for all of us, but I left with a feeling that this was better than the cliches about diversity, inclusion, and tolerance that many of us use to mask our real, our real feelings. The reality is that people do not feel diverse, inclusive, and tolerant as often as we pro profess. A lot of people have asked me, how does your family feel about this book? What's their response? Our family numbers about 150 people, most of us in South Carolina. When my book was published, there were many who were close to being checked into the cardiac unit. <laughs> Some would have liked to check me into the psychiatric units. <laughs> the story sent a shiver through our clan. Some supported it. Many opposed or were frightened by it. And few of us actually liked the experience. But we're doing very well, thank you. I would describe our condition as bruised but healing. Interestingly, the women in the family reacted in a way that was different from the men. The women felt less fear and were more sympathetic to the idea implicit in my book that we should speak freely about the legacy of slave ownership that we carry and we should hold out the hand of reconciliation to black people. The men, generally speaking, have felt the better part of the anger and the worry.
and they've dwelt more on the disgrace that some believe the book has brought us. A year has passed since Slaves in the Family was first published. We have not been attacked in the street. We have not been sued for reparations. Occasionally, someone says something ugly in the press, but not too often. Many in the family now seem to believe that the consequences of speaking freely about the hard realities, such as the whipping and forced sex that our family perpetrated and condoned, have not been entirely adverse. We're beginning to feel again, as we had for the previous two centuries, that we're a damned interesting bunch. (laughs) And there may be a majority of family members who think that our world is more interesting than the one we lived in before all this began. Another question people frequently ask, what has been the reaction of black people? Some African Americans don't care for a white person, let alone a descendant of slave owners, telling their story of enslavement and survival. Others are understandably angry and use me as a target for their rage. One black editorialist in a New York newspaper compared my family to the Nazis, then added that the Germans had treated the Jews better than my ancestors had dealt with black people. The sexual exploitation of black women especially fills people with rage and pain. A review in the online magazine Slate, written by a regular New York Times writer who is black, said that my book had been too easy on my ancestors and made my family look benevolent. This came as a surprise to most of the balls. (laughs) On black radio talk shows, I've been physically threatened by callers One man in Philadelphia said that I should watch my step because if we met, he was coming after me. Now, it's not as bad as all that, especially around the subject of black and white sex. When I began to hear from black families that their ancestors included bald men as well as black women, I decided that I would try to find further research I did this because, not because I was skeptical of black oral tradition, but because I knew if I was to present to my white family, our new black cousins, I would have to have corroborating evidence. So I did what the Monticello Foundation recently did in providing uh, DNA evidence about the relationship between Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. And I searched in the ball records for circumstantial evidence and photographic evidence that might corroborate or disprove people's family traditions. And I found quite a lot of it, enough to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt with two African-American families that we were distantly but actually related. One of these families made it very easy. I was worried about how to start our relationship. They knew all about us. We knew nothing about them. This is typical. Black families, in many cases, know who their white kin are to this day, whereas in the white families, the memory of the uh, interracial sex was stamped out a century ago, not passed down. And what you have is denial. 
In fact, there are two pillars of tradition in the Ball family, which are repeated to each generation. One is that the Balls were gentle masters, that we were not abusive toward our slaves, that there, of course, was whipping in the slave days, but it happened next door at the neighbor's place. The neighbors were well known for beating their slaves, but not in our family. And the other piece of oral tradition, the other pillar of family tradition, is that there was no interracial sex. Now, the man next door was well known, but not us, not our men. And if you talk to any family who are descended from slave owners, you'll be likely to hear the same two pillars of family tradition. In any case, a family in Atlanta that I found made things quite easy for me. They received me with a lot of humor. For them, it was a cosmic joke that I had appeared at their doorstep. They received me something like this. Uh-huh. <laughs> there you are. We know all y'all's business. And they did. One last story. <clears throat> about the National Book Award. When you write a book, the only thing you can think about is whether you're going to finish it. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting the phone call that came in November last year from my editor to say that my book was nominated for the National Book Award. I was raking the leaves in the yard. And he said, would you come to New York for the award ceremony where they're going to hand it out. Now, these award ceremonies are modeled after the entertainment industry. There are five nominees for each category, and no one knows who wins until the moment it's announced. So I went to New York with my fiance, Liz, to attend the awards dinner, which was an event for 800, a black tie dinner for 800 in a midtown hotel. It was a room the size of a soccer field. And all the women were in gowns and all the men in tuxedos. There were 50 round tables in the room. Each was bought by a given publishing company for their nominees and dignitaries. Lining the walls of this giant ballroom were giant photographs of the nominees, each photograph the size of a king-size bed. <laughs> and against the rear wall, was a video screen the size of a house. Circulating in the ballroom was a man with a video camera whose simultaneous broadcast went on to this video screen like at a football game. And every once in a while, he would come up to my table and stick it in my face. So I sat at this table with my editor on my left, my fiance on my right, my agent, the publisher of the company, and others. And the evening began with a beautiful talk by John Updike, the novelist. And he was elegiac and sentimental 
And he had people laughing and crying. And everyone was in a great mood. And he sat down, and the feeling in the room was wonderful. I leaned over to my fiancé, and I said, Liz, I might win this damn thing, and I don't have an acceptance speech. (laughs) And in this room is everyone with any power in the publishing business. So, the lamb course arrived, and I took a paper cocktail napkin and a pencil, and I went to the men's room. (laughs) And I I sat on the bank of sinks, which were wet. (laughs) And I penciled one sentence and scratched it out. And I penciled another sentence, and I was... I had ten words. And suddenly the door of the bathroom flies open, and there's another guy in a tuxedo, and he says, you're Edward Ball, aren't you? And I said, sheepishly, yeah. And he says, what are you doing, writing your acceptance speech? (laughs) And I was so embarrassed that I wadded up the napkin and stuck it in my pocket and went back to the table. And the lamb was cold. And I still didn't have an acceptance speech. Five minutes passed. The master of ceremonies took the stage and they announced the first award for nonfiction in 1998 goes to Edward Ball for Slaves in the Family. There's a carpet of applause, and the video cameraman comes and jams the camera in my face, and my picture is broadcast across the wall as I walk to the stage. And I took the stage, and I said something or another, (laughs) which must have been okay. In any case, it was better than taking a wadded paper napkin out. and reading from it. Thank you very much. Thank you.